That brings us to our consideration, which is on the back page of your bulletin. And it's from Lewis Berry Chafer. And as you can see, I'm very partial to Lewis Berry Chafer. Uh, he has, this is probably one of the greatest statements that he's made. But there's always, uh, if you get his book on grace, uh, he has an excellent book on grace if you get it. Um, I think I had it, but I loaned it to somebody, and I can't remember who I loaned it to. I can't find it. But it's an excellent book on grace that he has, and nobody talks about grace better than, I think, Lewis Perry Chafer. If you want to understand grace, he does an excellent job. And so here he quotes this, Grace is always without human merit. Grace is always without human merit. Grace finds its greatest triumph and glory in the sphere of human helplessness. Grace ceases to be grace if God is compelled to withdraw it in the presence of human failure and sin. In fact, grace cannot be exercised where there is the slightest degree of human merit to be recognized. And that's absolutely true. We live in a time, and many of your people in Christendom believe that they bring something to the table. Or you have a lot of believers that believe if, if, they, if they sinned, now they're not saved anymore. I can't tell you the countless times that I remember growing up as a kid and watching people come to the altar call, and they believed that they lost their salvation because of something that they did. It was a persistent thing. Do you know how torturous an existence it is if you believe that what you are doing, God's grace is based upon what you do? That's not a very powerful God. You see, God's more powerful than you. And Christ died. When he died, he paid the price for every sin you and I will ever commit. He's very sufficient and able to get you from where you are to where he wants you to go. And it's totally on the basis of his grace that it's possible. And when you understand that, you can actually live in freedom. And a lot of believers don't understand that. And they're living tortured lives. Tortured lives. Okay, that brings us, I think that this is going to be our next to last sermon. When I come back, Lord willing, the rapture doesn't occur and we make it back. Um, We'll wrap up this series on love. So this is our next to last message. And I wanted to talk to you today about the discernment of love. And so you can have a tool and not know how to use it. You can have a tool and not know how to use it. You have to be able as a believer to look at the opportunities of being able to love. Where are those opportunities? How do I see the need? And so there's a question that comes up um, Who do I love? How do I use this love? What about somebody who is sinning? What do I do to them? Do I just continue to love them and say, oh, it's going to be okay? How do I relate to that person? What about somebody, we'll see, who is feeble-minded? You have believers that can be feeble-minded. Their souls can overwhelm them, you see. How do I... What does that person need? How do I meet their need? You're going to see believers as you go along this journey in a lot of different places. You have to be able to recognize who are you dealing with and what do they need. 
right? And there's some discernment that comes with that as the believer is filled by the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will give you the insight on what to do. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to go through some different passages that talks about different believers in different situations. And so what you're going to find is that you, you're not going to find all the believers are going to be in the same place all the time. So it's going to take you being able to have some discernment to recognize what's going on here. And wh- how can I love this person? How can I give them what they need? Sometimes we can give people the wrong thing. And as I've said, sometimes as you're loving someone, you can give them what they need, but they don't have an appreciation for it. Right? Somebody who is um, um, not good with money and they are continually wasting money, maybe they might not need you to give them money. Maybe they might need you to show them how to uh, take a class on how to um, learn how to deal with money. Maybe your better part, a better part of your uh, uh, helping them is to pay for a class for them to learn how to deal with money. Right? There's some discernment that you need in order to know how to give the believers what they need. And it's not just willy-nilly. Somebody who is involved in sin, you know, maybe they don't need me to commiserate with them. What they need me to do is to exhort them to Confess that sin and move forward. And so these, this is very important. So I can direct agape love and I can have agape love as I'm filled by the Spirit, but how does that manifest itself in real time? I believe that there's some discernment that the Holy Spirit gives you to recognize who you're dealing with and what they need. And we'll see that as we move through some of these uh, illustrations in Scripture. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to have the, the ability uh, in this life to be able to glorify you. Not, we're just a vessel. There's nothing about us that is uh, in and of itself important. You chose the, the worst parts or the worst groups of people to save. And you, you got us and you're the one that saved us. Uh, through your son, Jesus Christ, you're the one that provides for us to be able to do the things that you desire It's all on the basis of what you have provided. And um, we're just a vessel that that allows you to be able to do this as I'm uh, dependent upon your provisions and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in my life that I'm able to do those things that are well-pleasing to you. And we're thankful for that potential in your son's name we pray. Amen. And so we start off in Romans chapter 14, and we find that there are weak believers in Scripture. And so this idea of a weak believer, and I, I give you this definition of one who is a weak believer. He is one who is without spiritual strength. He doesn't know or understand how to overcome his spiritual enemies. And consequently, he can be overwhelmed by the circumstances that are brought on by him. And you can stumble this guy. They don't know that, you know, um, some of the things that... Um, happen under law are not necessary that you could, there's some freedom that you might have to be able to partake in certain things and they can be stumbled very easily. Now notice there are two types of weaknesses that are prominent in scripture. Let's read Romans chapter 14 and verse 1 and 2 and then we'll look at these different types of weaknesses. 
Him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believes that he may eat all things, another who is weak eats herbs. Let him that is that eat despise uh, him. Um, despise um, let not him that eat despise him that eats not and let not him which eats not judge him that eats for God has received him verse 4 who art thou to judge another man's servant to his own master he stands or falls yea he shall be holden up for God is able to make him stand one man esteems one day above another another esteems Every day alike, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regards the day regards it as unto the Lord. He that regards it not the day uh, to the Lord, he does not regard it. He that eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks, he gives God thanks. And he that eats not to the Lord, eats not and gives God thanks. For none of us live to himself, and no man dies to himself. For whether we live, we live unto the Lord. Whether we die, we die unto the Lord. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the Lord's. And so you have this issue of, um, in Romans, about what someone would eat, eat and whether or not it would cause a weaker brother to stumble. What does it mean when he says a weaker, a weak brother? The word weak there is the word asthenia. Uh, it's uh, used in a couple of ways in the New Testament. One is it's used of a lack of physical strength, that someone can be weak with a lack of physical strength. But here it's used of a lack of spiritual strength. Now let me show you in 1 Corinthians 8 9, it's used of the conscience. And I really believe what's happening here is someone doesn't have knowledge, and as a result of it, they can be um, destabilized by someone who is um, who has better knowledge and chooses to um, partake of things that they are not able to be sure about. Now notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in the context here there was some question as to whether or not you could go and eat food that was sacrificed to idols. And so you could see some of this in our American society in a way there are things that people say that you shouldn't do because people, um, these people are doing things that are sinful, right? Uh, let me give you an example of it. Now, I think we have to be careful telling people what they can and what they cannot do. And the older I get, the less I want to tell people what they should be doing. Really, you should be led by the Spirit in what you do. I remember it was a few years ago when we first got here, there was a campaign against Disney. Not as big as the one now. <laughs> but, you know, they had gay night, right? And there were some Christians that were saying, well, if you go to Disney, you're not a Christian, right? This would be a good example of it. And so what do you do if you go to Disney? Some people say, if you go to Disney, why? You're just a sinful person. Well, it depends upon your conscience about this issue, whether you're led to do that or not. I mean, you can go over to Disney and somehow gayness is not going to jump on you. But some people feel like it's a bad thing. You have to make that judgment. And when you start making judgments blanketly for everyone, it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing, no matter how bad you think this issue is. 
it's not a good thing for you to make those judgments for other people. Each person has to be convinced in their own mind. You see. And so notice here, this was an issue concerning meats. And there were people who weren't convinced in their own mind. Or they were convinced that if you go into Joe's uh, crab shack and eat from this meat because they offered it up to idols, somehow you are less of a believer. And, you know, it doesn't really matter. That meat is not going to make you more spiritual or less spiritual. And if you have knowledge, you understand that. But there are some believers, I understand, who believe that. And so what do you do? You don't want to stumble them. So notice what happens here in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 8. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. If a man thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know it. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, uh, eating of those things that are offered unto sacrifices unto idols, we know that the idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other God but one. And so we understand that there are people in the world who offer up things and sacrifices to idols. I've told you on occasion, and I know that Jeff and Vanessa and Scott have seen this as you deliver packages for FedEx. I used to go to houses, and they had the little Buddha statues you know, uh, sitting out front. And it was always fascinating to me to watch it. Because I'm thinking, this little thing here is just a little piece of whatever it's made of. If I hit it, it probably would fall over and break. But the person in that house probably would be abhorred that I would do that. Because they pour a lot of meaning into that little statue. And so you have this. And so notice he says, for verse 5, for though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be many and, uh, and uh, be, be it, and there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we are in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man uh, that knowledge. For some with conscience of an idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Right? So what is conscience? You, conscience is a combination of you have knowledge and behavior. Knowledge and behavior. So maybe you were taught, conscience is an interesting thing. Maybe you were taught as you were growing up, wash your hands before you sit down to eat every time you eat. And when you don't do that, your behavior doesn't line up with that knowledge. What happens? It bothers you. It bothers you. So now imagine someone who has been told that any, any, any meat that is offered to, as sacrifice to idols, that it's evil, that it's sinful. Now, imagine that same person having that belief and watching you go in to this place to eat. They can be stumbled. Not that you know, you might know yourself, there's nothing wrong with this meat. I mean, the meat hasn't changed because they offered it up as a sacrificed idol. It's still a steak. 
But with some people, the knowledge of this information can stumble them. Now, I give you another example. Uh, the whole issue of alcohol. Now, alcohol is not evil in and of itself. Uh, but if you get drunk with alcohol, that's what the Bible says, do not be drunk with wine. Right? But there are some people who, if they saw you go into an alcohol place, and I, I told you about the story of my mother-in-law's rum cake and why I never would go into ABC liquor to get that alcohol. Why? I started thinking, what if somebody saw me in here, what would they think? Right? And so this consciousness, and, I, and I, you reckon in your mind that if I came out of there with a bottle of rum, oh, I'm using this for my mother. I'm getting, what are you doing in here? My mother-in-law. I'm, I'm getting this for my mother-in-law's rum cake. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, right. <laughs> sure. And so you, you have this, and so this idea of this conscience, is, is you, you can have, some people have a conscience that has been oriented toward the fact, in, in Corinth what was happening was that this meat was offered unto idols. And so notice he says in verse uh, 9, and notice their conscience being weak, a word for weak there is our word, it's uh, asthenia, it's been made um, uh, to be, uh, uh, have a lack of strength because they don't have the ability to be able to see this is nothing but meat. These idols, no matter what they do to it, how many prayers they offer up to it, it's just meat, right? So you have two different believers, as it were, one would, which would see this as a uh, sacrifice to idols and be stumbled by it, and others who see it as just meat. It's not that big of a deal. And notice he says, but take heed, lest by any means your liberty of, of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see those that has knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? So now I've caused my brother to be stumbled by the fact that I'm doing it. So they said, well, if he's doing it, I can do it. Again, look, I, I think as believers, we ought to be very careful about what we tell other people to do. I say do as you, the Holy Spirit leads you. Do you know that the Holy Spirit might not be leading you to do what I do? And so now what he's saying is that if, they, if they, they saw these other, the Corinthians going into this place to eat this meat that is sacrificed to idols, now they're going to be emboldened to do it, and they do it, but they're not led to do it. You see? And when you can see this in a lot of different instances today where people want to emulate what they see other people doing, though they may not be led to do it. And so you have this in scripture. And so notice from a, a mature believer, one who is able to direct love, what does Paul say? He's, and back in Romans, he says, receive those who are weak in the faith. The word receive there, actually in Romans 14, 1, it says, those who are weak in the faith, you are to accept someone who doesn't have the strength to overcome his spiritual enemies. 
showing appreciation for them on the basis of their common position in Christ. So I can recognize, hey, this is where this believer is. You know how I can direct love toward them? I'm not going to say to them, don't you know you're a fool? This meat is just meat. I can go into this place and eat this meat. It's not going to hurt you. No, you recognize I'm dealing with a believer who is weak. And I'm not going to hurt or stumble them by trying to get them to do something that I'm confident about doing. And it happens. And so I think that we are sometimes as believers, like bulls in a china uh, shop, we don't use discernment about who we're dealing with. And so you look in scripture and there are distinctions made and admonitions made to us to be aware of the kind of people we're dealing with, even in the church. There's believers all over the spectrum. And you have to be aware of this in order to effectively use love toward the saints. I've got to know who I'm dealing with. And there's maybe believers, you might not say certain things too. Because it might be more than they can handle. And so we talked about this a little bit a few weeks ago when we talked about bearing one another's burdens. And that was another uh, way that the believer could do this. But notice uh, in Acts 20, 35, Paul talks about support those who are weak. Acts 20 and verse 35. Well, how can you support those who are weak if you don't even know who they are? And you don't recognize them? Uh, in Acts 20, it's interesting what he says here in 30, let's go back to 31. He's at the uh, Miletus and he's talking to the elders of the church of Ephesus. And he says, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn every one of you night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Notice what grace does, which has the as an, as able to build you up. And to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. I have coveted no man's silver or gold or apparel. Yea, you yourselves know that these hands have ministered unto my own necessities. And to them that were with me. I have showed you all things how that so laboring you ought. That word ought is it's necessary. This is... So this is not something you say, oh, yeah, this is a possibility. That word that has the idea it is a necessary thing among the saints. That you ought to support the weak. And uh, this, this word for support um, has the idea of, is metaphorically, of to grasp one with the intent of not letting go or holding on to them, to be devoted to. Uh, and so it's used uh, concerning the weak. Um, we'll see it again in First Thessalonians, uh, but it's also used elsewhere in Scripture of supporting the weak. And notice he adds this to it. And to remember the words of the Lord Jesus, 
how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, that's not the axiom of the world today, right? <laughs> it is more happy to give than to receive. Not today. Not among the unsaved, but certainly all certain certainly still be among believers. And notice, this is an interesting one here uh, concerning these believers who are weak and who are sh- struggling. First Thessalonians five fourteen. Now this is really interesting. And I don't think that we often really have an appreciation for what is said right here. In First Thessalonians, Paul gives some admon- admonitions uh, to the Thessalonians as he is signing off. And he says in verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren. Now, notice he's going to deal with three different groups of people here. And he's going to say here that... Um, he, 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 we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. Now, we'll see this unruly again because it's, uh, he uses it in, uh, later, on in, later on in First Thessalonians and also in Second Thessalonians about those who are out of step. Do not, you, know, you had some among the Thessalonians who said that, well, since the Lord is coming, we'll just wait and, uh, for him and we'll sell all of our food, our goods and whatnot, and we'll just live off of other believers. And they weren't working. And he said uh, there was a problem with that. He says, warn the unru- them that are unruly. But here's the issue here. Comfort the feeble-minded. And this word for feeble-minded is a really interesting word. It's a compound form of the word for little and suke, soul. They're of little soul. There are believers that you will see in the body of Christ that their emotions have gotten the better of them. And they don't know how to overcome it. And so what do you do to them? I mean, you, there's the recognition that you recognize who it is that you're dealing with, that you have a person who overwhelmingly their emotions are taking advantage of them. How do I love them? How do I give them what they need? Some believers, you say, come on man, stop that. This is a bunch of nonsense. Maybe they need a slap upside the head and say, get on with it. Other believers, notice what he says here, comfort they need someone to come alongside of them and say, man, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. You're going to get on the other side of this. Notice this word for comfort here. It's actually, it's a fire word that we, um, uh, it's a, a, actually the word, a different word, it's not paracoleo, it's actually the word here means to speak alongside of one presumably for the purpose of bringing them into remembrance of truth that can ease their emotional distress. You see this word used again. Notice over in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul talks about how he was among the Thessalonians uh, and his behavior among the Thessalonians that he he was able to uh, relate to them in this way. 
Uh, notice in verse uh, 12 of First Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, start, start with verse uh, 10. You are witnesses of God and how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved among our, uh, ourselves among you that believe, as you know how we exhorted and we comforted you uh, and charged every one of you as a father does his children, that you should walk worthy of God who has called you uh, into his kingdom and glory. Actually, that, that uh, is in verse 11. Of, uh, and this word to um, uh, is to exhort and to console. It's, it's actually translated here to console one. Um, and is the idea behind it. It's a compound form there of um, uh, paramuthos. And it actually has the idea of that you're consoling someone. And it's not the idea of exhorting them and, and pushing them forward. And you see that word used in several places in the New Testament. And then another way that you can do that with these kind of believers, as we've seen, is to bear one another's burdens. And so there's discernment about weak believers that makes it possible to attend to their needs. You have several different kinds of weak believers that you see that are mentioned in Scripture. You have those who are weak and their consciences are weak. You have others who are feeble-minded. You have others who are burdened down. And the believer, when, the, when you are able to be spiritual, you understand how you can direct agape love in those different situations. Now notice discernment concerning a believer struggling with sin is necessary to provide for the, believe, the, the believer the thing that is needed. So what do you do? How do you, you direct agape love when you see someone who is involved in sin? Now most of the time in a lot of churches, and you can see this with the Corinthian church, what they were doing was they were doing nothing. And so what happened in Corinth, if you turn to the first Corinthians, the uh, fifth chapter. So as we talk about this, I do want to say that there's two kinds of sins that the believer uh, can engage in. There are public sins and there are private sins. There are public sins that everybody sees it and it's a scandal. And there's private sins. That nobody knows that. That's between you and the Lord. Please don't tell me about it. <laughs> we're not priests here in the Catholic Church where we're, we're taking confessionals. <laughs> Between you and the Lord. And, uh, and so here you have this issue. What was happening here is that you had a, a guy who was with his father's wife. And notice what happened here. The belief that love, and this is what the Corinthian church was saying, was that we love him so we, we will say nothing. That's not love. That's not love. And this is why I believe the church has lost the testimony that it had. Because we allow any and everything to go on inside the church. And so the church has lost its testimony because of it. So notice in verse 1, this is a really interesting chapter, what he says here. And throughout, we'll start with verse 1 and we'll read down through 9. This is where we're going. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Now, fornication is a bigger term for all kinds of sexual deviancy. So if you had a big circle, that would be fornication. In that circle would be all kinds of, it would be the alphabet people. It would be uh, bestiality. It would be all of these different sexual things that people are trying to call something else. You can call these things anything you want to call them. God calls them under a heading of fornication. That's what he calls it. 
And so you have the society today that is trying to call it something else. And, you know, people can call it whatever, you can call it whatever you want to call it. And it's like, I don't argue with people about it. You know why? Because, it's, like I continue to tell people, it's not like we're not going to all find out the truth. It's not like we're not going to all find out the truth. So I say, whatever people, you want to go with that, go with it. You're certainly free to go with it. But I'm going to tell you what scripture says. And so notice, he says, there is fornication among you and that such, and such fornication is not even named among the Gentiles. So this fornication, even the unsaved people weren't doing what this guy was doing. And notice what he was doing. That one should have his father's wife. Now, I don't think this was his mother. I think this was someone that his father had, uh, mother may have died and his father married someone else. And this guy was having a relationship with his stepmom. And so notice verse 2. Notice what happens, what the Corinthians response was. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as present in the body and present, uh, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already. <gasps> he said that word. He judged him. And uh, you're not supposed to judge. <laughs> I have judged you already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan. Now, how do you deliver such a one to Satan? Do you say, Satan, come get this guy? Well, in the early church, the apostles had the ability to do something that we don't have the ability to do today. The pastor teacher cannot deliver someone to Satan. Do you realize that? But the church can. Do you know when the church decides that someone is of a certain behavior, and they're acting of a certain behavior that the church has the authority from God and will see it to ask that person not to attend this service anymore until they get this right. And so he says, you do, and what happens after that? Here's the thing. If that person is a believer, God will intervene in his life and he will allow Satan to do things to that person they will wish the church had judged him. And that's what's happening there. Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? And so here's what happens is that as you allow this to happen in the church, it spreads. It's not going to stay isolated. Right? If the church doesn't deal with uh, sister so-and-so and what she did, they're not going to be able to deal with brother so-and-so and what he did. Then you get into partiality, and it all starts falling apart. It all starts falling apart. And so notice what happens. He says, um, Purge, therefore, the old leaven, that you may uh, be a new lump, as you uh, are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. 
Therefore, let us not keep the feast with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and of wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and of truth. Now, here's the issue here. Notice what he says in verse 9. I wrote you in an epistle not to company with fornicators. Now, this word uh, company, it's actually to mix up together or associate with. It's, it's, uh, it only occurs here. But to be in an intimate association with people like this. But it's not the believers. You, you shouldn't be involved intimately together. Now, notice, this is important because he uses the word the soon preposition. The soon preposition, it assumes that you're in an intimate relationship with them. That you're together, you're seen as being together, united with them. Now this is different from if I'm at work, or I'm out in the store, and he's going to make that distinction. Why? Because if that were the case, where would I go? Where would I go? He's talking about don't assemble together with people Who's, who do these kinds of things? And notice he's going to give a list here. Verse 10. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or of the covetous, or the extortioners, or with idolaters, for then, then you must need go out of the world. So look, he's not talking about the world. And we've said it here many times. The people in the world are going to be the people in the world. They're going to do what they do. It's not my responsibility to sit out here on this corner and tell people you're going to hell or this behavior is abhorrent. And when I was at work and I saw these kind of things, I said nothing. Zilch. Nada. Because that's not what we're told to do. We're not told to judge the world. These people in the world and what they do it is what it is, and we know that there's a judgment coming. God has told us not to do it. He's going to take care of it. Now notice what he does say. So he parses this, and he makes a distinction here. But now I have written unto you not to keep company if a man is called a brother. Now how do you know that someone's a brother? How do you know they're a brother? Well, there's a lot of people in the church. Some people, it's like we used to sing a song, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there <laughs> when we were younger. There's a lot of people in the church when the rapture occurs. Do you realize there are going to be people sitting in the church that are still here after the rapture occurs? So not everybody in the church are true believers. God knows who those people are. But what he's saying here, he uses a word here from the word nomos, uh, anomia, excuse, excuse me, it's a, a form of a, a nomizo, I'm sorry. And it's, it has the idea to name uh, or to have a reputation or to be characterized as. And so someone has a reputation for being a believer. And as far as you know, everybody believes that they're a believer. Remember the uh, consideration we put on the back of the bulletin some weeks ago where they talked about the fact of uh, when, you, when you get to heaven, some people are going to be surprised at who makes it to heaven. <laughs> I mean, you know, some, some people are going to be surprised that I made it, right? 
<laughs> There's going to be a lot of surprises in heaven. And everybody's going to be looking, you made it? I can't believe you are here. Uh, but notice this characterize. You have, they have a reputation for being a believer. Now, whether they are or not really is immaterial here. It's the, on the outside, they have a reputation for being believers. So this, these are the people that falls into what he's saying here. But not the outside world. Notice what the church is doing. The church is spending all of our resources trying to attack the outside world, trying to clean up the outside world. And all I can say for you is if we're going to get involved in doing that, you're going to need a bigger shovel. And what does the Lord say? I'm going to take care of that. Notice what he says here. But now I've written of you not to keep company of a man we call a brother, and he be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard. They say today that's a disease. Why are we not associating with people who have a disease? God says it's a work of the flesh. Drunkenness is a work of the flesh. It is not a disease. But the unsaved people believe it's a disease. And so notice, are an extortioner. And notice what he says. With somebody who is characterized as being a a brother, with such a one who's doing these things, don't even eat with him. And notice what he says here. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without on the outside? You see that? God's not asking us to judge those on the outside. Why is he not asking us to judge those on the outside? Isn't that what we've been, in all of the time that I've been in church growing up, I've always seen that the church has assigned it as its responsibility to judge the outside world, right? What does it say right here? What have I to do to judge them that are without are really those on the outside? Do we not judge them that are within? Sounds pretty clear to me, right? Notice what he goes on to say. But them that are on the outside are without. Who judges them? God does. God judges them. Therefore, put away from among yourselves the wicked person. The word wicked there is actually where panaras evil. And it's, the, it's a malignancy. And just like any malignancy, it will spread. It will spread. And so, notice... That, that is a way, that is a loving thing to do. To judge believers who are in open behavior that is inconsistent with what God desires in the church. But do you know today most people would not think that that's loving? They would think that that's mean. Look, look at many of your, your uh, denominations today who have embraced homosexuality. Your um, Methodist church has gone full into it. I mean, the, the denomination is even split over it. Your Southern Baptist church have now begun to embrace it. 
those on the inside, the church is supposed to judge. Those on the outside, God judges. And so notice, um, if just look just a little bit down in chapter 6 and what he says there, any of you having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Don't you know that the saints shall judge the world? Do you know that you're going to make a better judge as a saint than a lot of the corrupt judges on the outside? One of the standards of judgment under law was that they had, there had to be righteousness. You had to be righteous. Do you know that a lot of these people can't judge because they're unrighteous people? They wouldn't know what right is if it bit them. They don't know how to judge righteously. Presumably, saints should be able to do that. You can do that. As we're spiritual, we can make right judgments. And so notice he says, and if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that you shall judge angels? <clears throat> Do you know that the saints are going to judge angels together with Christ? Tell me what Supreme Court justice that is not a believer is going to do that. So if we can judge in those matters, do you think it's a small thing or a big thing to not be able to judge in the matters among the saints? The Corinthians were saying, by not judging, they were loving. Paul rejected that. That's not loving. Just as if you do not discipline your kids, it's not loving. You don't love them. And so it's the same thing with, among the saints. And so how do I direct love to somebody who's in sin? I point out, hey, brother, you're out of line here. Really, and let me say it, and you can see this in Scripture. In Scripture, here's how it ought to work. First and foremost, we ought to judge ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 28. Hopefully, if we judge ourselves, we won't have to be judged by the church. Now, if we don't judge ourselves and we bring in things into the church from the world, now the church is going to have to make a decision. Hey, you can't do this here. And you say, well, mind your own business. I'm doing what I want to do then the church has to say, if they are directing love, no, you cannot do that here and you're not going to do it here. Please don't come back until you get this right. And now what do you say? You say, mind your own business. I'm going to do what I want to do. Okay, bye. (laughs) Now God's going to judge you. Is that what it says? Well, hold your finger there. Let me show you. Now this is a loving thing. And we are living in a society today where they think discipline and judgment is not loving. It's not loving. It's mean. Well, look at all of the people who have not been disciplined in the world. And look, is that loving to allow them to develop the way that they have? It's really sad. Notice in the 11th chapter of 1 Corinthians what Paul says here. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. 
For he that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks, the word damnation is judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now notice what, what happens here, verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And I think when God has to intervene, he's like the proverbial father. He says, pop, 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 stop that. And he says, oh no, I'm going to keep going. You can't make me. Pop, pop, pop. You've done this to your kids, right? I said, stop it. And you say, no, you, I'm going to do it anyway. And he said, oh yeah. Why don't you just come join me up here? The view looks better from up here than it does down there. And notice what happens here, why he does this. Verse 31. For if we should happen to judge ourselves, maybe you will, maybe you won't. If we should happen to judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Well, people say, well, don't judge me. Well, judge yourself. But judge yourself, right? And nobody will judge you. And so notice he said, if we happen to judge ourselves, we will not be judged. But notice what happens. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. We're in the family of God, and he's not going to let you be condemned with the world. If that perchance could happen, you would be condemned with the world. And he's not going to allow that to happen. That's not going to happen. It's a loving thing. Do you see? Is God being mean and hateful here by doing this? It's a loving thing. And so that's a way of directing love that the church certainly doesn't see as a, as a means of directing love anymore. One other thing before we close. Look at 1 John five sixteen. I did want to get to this. And this is really interesting. It's another place where the believer is, is called to show discernment in, in what's going on. And that there's discernment concerning believers who are struggling in sin and how to identify this. This is really necessary. And it's necessary. And so we, we've got this thing where people say in the church, well, you ask them, was well, that person sinning? Oh, well, who am I to say? Oh, come on. Come on. In scripture, there is the presumption that you can identify what's going on with another believer. There's the presumption that you can know this. Well, look at this. 1 John 5, 16. Well, let's start with verse 14. Because this is really an interesting scripture, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever thing we ask, we know that we have the petitions that, he, uh, that he, we desired of him. Now, notice what happens here. This is an interesting thing he says here in verse 16. If any man see his brother uh, sin a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask and he shall give him life. Uh, for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he should pray for it. 
And so this word, that this idea of seeing is that you can actually visualize, you can see with the eyes what is going on with a believer. And there are certain sins that someone can be involved in and you communicate and you ask on their behalf and the father is going to uh, be involved in that situation. But there are certain sins, people who are sending sins into death, he says don't even ask for that person. Don't even ask about them. And so there's a presu- there's a, the, the um, uh, presumption here that there is ones who are sending a sin unto death. And that word for sin there is actually an unauthorized, a kind of sin. And notice that unto is towards our facing death. Interesting, the word for death here is the word thanatos. Thanatos, is, there's several death terms that are used in the New Testament. Thanatos looks at the idea of separation. That means your soul, spirit, and body are separating. And as one of my seminary instructors used to say, and you move into a different realm of existence. You move into a different realm of existence. There are believers who send a sin unto death. They get to the point where they're denying the Holy Spirit, they're grieving the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's not able to work in their life, and they're going to do their thing, and God has to intervene. And there you see some examples of it. I think Courtney <laughs> uh, looked at an illustration in the early church of how that worked out, right? With Ananias and Sapphira, and how that worked out. And then there are some other illustrations where the Lord has to intervene and take some people home. Notice one other thing. In Jude, he says, for those who are involved in a sin, an erring believer, Show mercy to those who are wavering, those who doubt, who don't live by faith and consequently fall into sin and are suffering as a result of their sin. And notice uh, he says, pull some out of the fire. And that presumes that these are those behaving like unsaved and thereby in danger of the same judgment they would receive. Notice he says, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Do you know agape love sometimes means you will have to deal with other believers and it's going to make you uncomfortable? You may have to tell them things that they don't like. And a lot of believers don't want to do it. But do you know it's a loving thing when you see someone who is in sin to say to them, this is not right. We've made it all emotional. Love is just an emotional thing. And we don't believe that you should tell anybody anything negative. That anything should be allowed to go. And as the Corinthians, what did they think? Oh, we're not going to talk to this guy with his father's wife. Everybody knew what was going on. Nobody said a word. Why? Oh, we're loving. We're loving him. We're just going to love all over him. And Paul says, I'm not there and I've already judged the guy. I've already judged him and I'm not even there. Love and being able to discern how to use that love 
with where believers are is hugely important to you being effective. You have to understand who you're dealing with. We've seen weak believers. We've seen believers who were involved in sin. You have to be able to know what needs to happen in this situation in order to effectively use love the way that God has provided for it to be used. And that makes a huge difference for the saints when we understand it. We'll come back, Lord willing, when we return, and we'll close out this message as a recap of where we've been on love. And I hope that you've understood, if nothing else, that the love toward the saints affects how the world sees the saints and the body of Christ. And we'll recap that, Lord willing, when we get back. Father, we're grateful for the opportunity of being able to see these things and grateful as believers that we can actually have discernment on how we love that there's different believers in different situations who need different things. And as we direct agape love in those circumstances, that we can provide for those believers to have what they need. And we're thankful that sometimes this might not be what the believer thinks that they need, but is in fact what they do need as we're led by the Holy Spirit to give it. And we're so thankful for that potential. In your son's name we pray. Amen.